Well, good morning, everybody. I don't know about you, but I love Christmas. I love almost everything about Christmas. Almost. I love the kids that were up here earlier. I think they're absolutely adorable, and I don't know... Yeah. I don't know which is cuter, the kids being up here or watching 400 of you with your phones trying to film them. And I know that I won't out-cute them. I knew I was doomed this morning when I saw the kids up on the stage, so I'll do my best. I love almost everything about Christmas. The one thing I don't like about Christmas, I hate about Christmas, is waiting in line. You with me on that? Waiting in line. Thank you. That was just heartfelt, too. So I, I go to get in line to check out, and I look, and I look not just for the shortest line. I look for the carts that have the fewest items. I look for the cashiers who look like they're experienced and they're moving people through the line the fastest. There is a science to this, to get out of the store in the fastest means possible. Last Sunday, my wife and I went to Best Buy for a members-only iPhone exchange event. We got there right on time, and we went up and we found out that we were 25th on the list the waiting list to be served. So I used my current iPhone, tapped into their Wi-Fi, found another Best Buy store nearby where there was no waiting list, and we went there. Some would call me impatient. I prefer to think of myself as resourceful. (laughs) I hate to wait. So I can't imagine being a Jewish believer And having heard the prophecies of Jesus for centuries told that a Messiah was coming. And for thousands and thousands of years waiting that that Christmas morning was one day going to come. I can look at history from this perspective and pick dozens of points when it would have been the perfect time for Jesus to have been born. And still... God waited, and he waited, and he waited. He waited until peace had settled all over the known world. He waited until an intricate system of roads had been built and travel was safe. He waited until there was a common language over all the Roman Empire, until there was a spiritual hunger in the Roman culture and even in the nation of Israel. God waited until all the pieces were in place so that the good news of the gospel of Christ could be spread. And then, then, Paul writes, when the right time came, God sent his son to be born of a woman. Well, as much as I hate to wait now, I think the hardest thing in the world was waiting for Christmas morning when I was a kid. Everybody with me on that one? It seemed like it would never, ever get here. And I know parents did and continue to do a lot of things to help kids get ready for Christmas morning. I know a lot of you, I see your pictures on Facebook. You do the elf on a shelf thing to help the Christmas waiting. I mean, when I was a kid, we didn't have stuff like that, right? Um, you know, best, I think the best thing my parents could do was the old construction paper Christmas chain. Anybody remember that? You know, you cut a link off every morning to help the kids know that Christmas is getting closer. That's about as helpful as watching water boil, you know? It was more torture than it was helpful. 
And how many of you were like me? You got impatient for Christmas to get here, and you actually started looking through the house, trying to find the presents. Anybody with me on that one? Oh, seriously? This is not a rhetorical question. All right, I'm going to do three questions. I want to show of hands. How many of you actually will confess? Church is a good... See, thanks. All right. Yeah. You started looking through the house. How many of you... Second question. This will bring out the rebels. I want to show of hands here. How many of you, when you actually found the presents, unwrapped them and opened them? Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Third question. You actually opened the present and played with it and broke it. Yeah, see, now what do you do with that? Do you just like put it back in the box and then you open it Christmas morning and go, oh my gosh, mom, it's broken. How did that happen? And that's just like, that's just chaos on Christmas morning, trying to like lie to your mom on Christmas morning. There's there's a special place in hell for people like that, don't you think? (laughs) I mean, that whole dynamic of waiting and waiting and waiting sets up what we want to talk about this morning, two people who were integral to the Christmas story that we just kind of overlook, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were the parents of John the Baptist. And it's easy with people like that to just look at them and go, yeah, they were John's parents, John was important. There's a real critical reason that God chose them. And Luke chapter 1 tells their story. In every generation before the birth of Christ, there was always this faithful remnant, this group of people in the Jewish religion who lived every single day anticipating that first Christmas morning, the birth of the Messiah. Scriptures had talked about his birth from the Garden of Eden onward. And these people lived in faithful obedience to God's commands, believing every morning when they woke up, this could be the day. And 99.9999% of them died without seeing the Messiah. And that went on for thousands of years. To the point which so many of the Jewish people just started to think, you know, this is a myth. This is, this is a fairy tale. This is never, ever, ever going to happen. They just went on with their life, gave up on the promise. It's there, but it's just never going to happen. And I think that Luke chooses intentionally to begin the Christmas narrative with Zechariah and Elizabeth because their story is so similar to ours. There are times in our lives when God feels so absent, is so silent, that we can begin to wonder, why am I doing this? Why am I serving and giving and following and obeying? Why am I doing this? Why do I continue to live every single day as if there's something bigger than me? And in those times, doubt and fear can creep in. If you've ever felt like that, if you've ever had those fears... This narrative is for you. And Luke begins it just like this. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And his wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So her dad was a priest. His dad was a priest. If they were born today, we just call them preacher's kids. That's who they were. Their dads served as priests, teaching and serving in the temple. And beyond that, Luke says, both of them were righteous in the sight of God. They observed all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. 
That's pretty impressive. If you look at their lives from God's perspective, they were getting it right. They were obeying all the commands. And that's a lot. If you look back in the Old Testament at the books that contain the commands of of God, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you pull out of those books where God's commands were, they are dozens of chapters. I mean, let's just be honest. We don't even like reading those sections of the Old Testament. They obeyed them from God's perspective blamelessly. And they did it in a really tough period to live out your faith. For more than 400 years, from the last words of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, until the time where they were living, 400 plus years, God had been silent. There were no prophets speaking God's word. There were no new messages from God. There were no miracles from God. He was silent. And yet this couple lived as though every morning was going to be Christmas morning. They believed that God would still fulfill his promise. So I read that. They lived blamelessly. And I wonder, how's it working out for them? I mean, how's God and them? How are they getting it on? Getting it along with it? Okay. Luke 1, 7. But they were childless. Because Elizabeth wasn't able to conceive, and they were both very old. And that has more significance than we read. Every day they lived as good people and served God faithfully. Zechariah teaches and serves as a priest, and God leaves them without an heir. In their culture, there was a stigma attached to being childless. It was wrongly believed that God chose who would and wouldn't have children based on your virtues, based on your character, based on your actions. If you didn't have a child, it's because you'd done something wrong in your life. There was a reason. It was a judgment from God. And so the whole village would look at you and go, "Ah, there's something we don't know about you. God's punishing you. Later on in this passage, we learn that Zechariah and Elizabeth had prayed desperate prayers to God throughout their married life that he would bless them with a child. So they're living blamelessly, but the culture looks at them and says, "Eh, there's something a little funky going on in their life that we don't know. Looks good on the surface. No kids. That means God's holding something against them. Now they're old and they've resigned themselves to living with public shame and humiliation. So they just go, there has to be a reason God's not answering our prayers. In the same way he's not answering the nation's prayers to send the Messiah. Now, we don't get the whole picture of this because most of us didn't grow up Jewish. So let me give you just a quick survey of history and the Old Testament to help us all understand why their story is here. Why it matters that it's here and how it relates so closely to us. 2,000 years before Zechariah and Elizabeth, God made some promises to Abraham. You can read those in the book of Genesis. He said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And that happened, became the nation of Israel. He said, I'm going to bless you and make your name great. That happened. There's hardly anybody that doesn't know the name of Abraham. And on and on the promises go until you come to this one. Through your offspring... All nations on earth will be blessed. 
That's another one of those verses that points forward to the coming of the Messiah. So you read on in the Old Testament from, of Abraham's descendants, of Isaac, of Jacob. You keep going and you read in the Old Testament. You get to King David, who's a direct descendant of Abraham. And you read of David's son, Solomon. Through their reigns in Israel, Israel becomes this incredible nation. God establishes them with great political and military power. They're respected all throughout the Middle East. Their faith is incredible as a nation. The temple is built. So all the stage is set. And it looks like, historically, this is a phenomenal time for the Messiah to be born. Doesn't happen. There were, then you follow after Solomon and you keep reading in the Old Testament and the nation falls apart. They literally split in two. There were continual wars, good kings, bad kings. Their faith from that point on is all over the place. From the time of Solomon to the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth, there were 25 power changes, ruler changes in the nation of Israel. The nation itself was taken over by the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Persians, the Romans, eventually. The whole nation was enslaved for a period of 70 years. There were times that they didn't even have their own army to defend themselves. They became a minimal factor in terms of the the whole world scene. So you hear the prophecies where God says, I'm going to bless the world through you. And you're a Jew living through all of that? And you kind of go, really? We're a country with no leverage. We're a country with no wealth. We can't even control our own destiny. How are we going to bless the world? How is God going to fulfill that promise? And then, as if to add insult to injury, in 65 B.C., Pompey, the great Roman general, marches into Jerusalem and occupies the city. city that has huge historical significance, both historically and theologically. Marches into Jerusalem and he pushes past the temple guards. He marches into the temple itself and he drew back the curtain that separated the worshiping center from the Holy of Holies, the place where the Israelites believed that God himself lived. And Pompey walked into the Holy of Holies. In the Bible, God said, the only person who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest, and he was only to go in once a year God had commanded that if anyone ever went into the Holy of Holies other than the high priest, that they would be struck dead immediately. So picture the scene. The temple guards are pushed aside. The priests are watching. Pompey, a pagan Roman general, is now walking into the Holy of Holies. The priests gasp at what is about to take place. They've never seen this happen before. He walks into the Holy of Holies and... Nothing happens. Nothing. And the message reverberates throughout the nation of Israel that Jupiter, the God of the Romans, must 
be more powerful than the God of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the reason that all matters so much is that in 65 BC, Zechariah and Elizabeth were children. Their fathers were priests serving in the temple and watched this happen. No doubt, no doubt, they watched as this Roman general desecrated the temple and they tore their robes and mourned. Pompey ignored all their customs, all the commands of Scripture, all their traditions, and walked into the Holy of Holies, and God did nothing. And in that era, many Jews gave up their faith in God. They integrated Greek and Roman culture into their lives because, after all, God had been proven powerless. But not to everyone. To that remnant to those two small children, Zachariah and Elizabeth. They chose to love God and serve God their whole life, even while they remembered the sacrilege of Pompeii. They waited for Christmas morning, for the birth of the Messiah, wondering, why doesn't God act sometimes in our behalf? Wondering if God would fulfill the promise he'd made to Abraham. That's why this story matters so much. Because there are seasons in our lives when we wonder, is God still listening? Does he still care? And the Christmas story offers us a resounding yes. The story goes on. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by Lot according to the custom of the priesthood. He was chosen to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense, all of the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So here's what happened. In Zechariah's day, there were more priests to perform the functions than there were functions. And so offering the incense was an incredible privilege. They could not have a higher function as a priest. And so they did this little deal that was kind of like drawing straws to see who would get to do it. And you would only get to do this once in your lifetime as a priest. And, it, and so on that day, Zechariah was chosen. It was the highest honor, the most important thing he would ever do in his lifetime. And so he would go in, everyone clear out the temple, they'd stand outside and pray, and he would go in and offer incense right at that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple while everyone was praying. When he did that, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. By the way, by the way, if you read the Old and the New Testament, that is the standard response of anybody who sees an angel. (laughs) Gripped with fear. Which is always a curious thing to me. Angels are never these cute, cuddly, like little statues you see on people's, you know, uh, shelves in their home. They're not an Angela Lansbury kind of thing, you know, touched by an angel. Never. They are not intending to be scary. They are just these massive, powerful, otherworldly beings. And so that's why when anybody tells me, I dreamed and I talked to an angel last night and they're not afraid, I just kind of go, really? Um, 
Because anytime I read in Scripture, the standard response when somebody sees an angel is they are scared out of their mind. Okay? And remember, Zechariah doesn't have anything to be afraid of. He's living his life blamelessly. Can you imagine if an angel appeared to you or me? If an angel appeared to me, I'm just saying, I'd start confessing stuff all over the place. I'd start confessing stuff I'd never done if an angel appeared to me. So the angel appears, and the angel then gives what is a standard angel response. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. You know, so there's fear, and he goes, really, don't be afraid. We've got some business to do here. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. That is an amazing thing to hear. Not the part so much that your prayer has been answered. That's astounding. But just to have an angel look at you and say, your prayer has been heard. How many times in your life would that have been a gift? Just to have an angel whisper in your ear, God's heard your prayer. God heard you. I still don't want Gabriel to appear. Maybe his like, you know, pint-sized second cousin, you know. Just, that would be okay. That wouldn't frighten me. But just to hear God say, I heard your prayer. Whether he answers it or not, just to know my prayers are reaching him would be huge sometimes. He'll be a joy. He'll be a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, because he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or fermented drink. He'll be be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Why? Because in that 400 years, there were a lot of people in Israel who'd given up hope. He'll go on before the Lord in the spirit of power of Eli- and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for their Lord. And then Zechariah just shows his humanness and questions. And he says, how can I be sure of this? Because I'm an old man. And then he gets political. (laughs) I'm an old man, and my wife, um, well, she's well along in years. He's a smart man. He knows his Old Testament. He knows these conversations between angels and men don't stay private. (laughs) So he doesn't dare say, my wife is old. He just says, she's well along in years. Take a cue, men. This is your Christmas gift for me. (laughs) Essentially, he's saying to the angel, you're a little late. We prayed for this in our 20s and 30s. And we were even optimistic enough to pray in our 40s and 50s. But here's the deal. We are old. It is too late for us. And I'm about to walk out of this temple and tell my wife what you've told me. And I don't want to get her hopes up. How do I know this is going to be true? I need some help. 
And then you get a little angel attitude from Gabriel. I mean, hear that when you read this. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you didn't believe my words, which will now come true. And I love these last four words. At their appointed time. I love those words. At their appointed time. You can almost feel Zachariah's head start to spin. He's waited faithfully for the coming Messiah all of his long life. He's prayed fervently for the birth of his own child. And at Gabriel's words, he has a million questions. You mean God had this day marked on his calendar for centuries? You mean God has waited this long and he's been silent on purpose? You mean what happened with Pompeii was a part of his plan? He's had a set day and a set time to fulfill his promise. He hasn't lost interest in us. Gabriel's words gave him the solid assurance that even though God may be quiet, he is not inactive. And while all of this is going on inside the temple with Zechariah, the people are outside waiting and praying. And this really isn't a long thing that's supposed to take place in the temple. It's just a couple of minutes. And they're starting to get a little concerned. They're starting to wonder why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, Zechariah couldn't speak to them. And they realized he'd seen a vision in the temple because he kept making signs to them, but he couldn't speak. And when his time of service was completed, Zechariah returned home. And his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. And for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Hmm. Zechariah and Elizabeth lived their entire lives with no assurance None. That God would ever give them a child. None. That they would ever see the Messiah. But they were faithful. And that single conversation in the temple with Gabriel set in motion a course of events that would lead to the birth of Jesus just a few months later. In many ways, Zechariah and Elizabeth's story is our story. Do we believe or do we stop believing when God is silent? Do we maintain hope or do we walk away when the doubts and the fears come? When the questions linger? Why won't God answer my prayers? What if my faith is a lie? What if God isn't real? Every generation has a remnant of believers who must decide for themselves. Will I remain faithful 
even if I cannot clearly see what God is not doing. Zechariah and Elizabeth could not imagine how God would give them a child. And in human terms, it did not look possible that God would bless the world through this tiny little country of Israel. But they remained strong. They remained faithful. And their story reminds us that our faith is not misplaced. That even when God is silent, He is not still. And even when He is still, He is not uninterested. And even when we have convinced ourselves that God is uninterested, it has nothing to do with the plans that He has for us or for our world. Christmas is a reminder to all of us that our faith and our hope are not in vain. That God keeps his promises to us even when it seems like all hope is lost. Every week at communion, I am continually reminded at the perfect timing of God's grace. Romans 5, 6 says, while we were utterly helpless at just the right time, Christ died for us. And that grace was perfectly timed at the birth of Jesus. And I find that it's still perfectly timed just when I need it every day, every week of my life. And in the quiet moments of communion every week, I'm reminded of that, how His grace comes and comes and comes and washes over me, reminding me of the forgiveness that I have in Him, the opportunity to start fresh and renew every single day. So I hope that you'll be reminded of that today as you celebrate, of the perfect timing of God's grace. When the trays are passed, take a piece of bread and eat it and remember Christ's body broken for you take a cup of juice drink it and remember that as well as blood spilled to offer you that perfect grace forgiveness and love of Christ made possible by his birth on that first Christmas morning so long ago by his sacrifice on the cross let's pray God this time of year we focus in and marvel at the wonder of Christmas morning when Christ left heaven, came to earth to be born of a virgin for us and to purchase our salvation through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Remind us anew today in this time of communion. Meet us here, we pray in Christ's name.